on the, the handout that I've given, uh, which I will partly follow, uh, on the handout that I've given, um, I've begun with a, a quotation that I want to read because it's really important that you recognize how, how striking it is. This is a, a quotation from the Catechism, um, which of course you will all know uh, by heart, uh, and yet it deserves repeating. The Christian faith is not a religion of the book. Christianity is the religion of the word of God, a word which is not a written and mute word, but the word which is incarnate and living. If the scriptures are not to remain a dead letter, Christ, the eternal word of the living God, must, through the Holy Spirit, open our minds to understand the scriptures. Much of what I have to say this evening is about how, after a long story and much controversy, the common teaching of Popes Benedict and Francis is to emphasize that theme summarized so nicely uh, in uh, the Catechism. So my goal then is to try and understand a common theme. If you've seen the two popes with Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price, um, and if you've read too much in popular newspapers, you'll be familiar with the idea that Benedict and Francis are resolutely opposed one to the other. Uh, one is a crusty old German who likes his red slippers, uh, while the other is a football-loving Argentinian man of the people. Now, like most of such presentations, this is mostly nonsense. Um, but it is a perspective that's very easy to fall into. There certainly are many differences in um, the, between the two popes. There's no doubt about that. And I'm sure many of you could identify some. But at the same time, there are fascinating areas of strong continuity. And what I'm leading up to this evening is to talk about one of those areas of continuity. And that's the way in which they talk about um, the understanding of scripture in the church. Okay. So what I want to do is to explore a theme of continuity. And that is, how should we think about scripture within a Catholic context? What's our theology of scripture? And how should we read scripture? The two are, as we'll see, quite interrelated. Before I can dive straight into that, I need to talk for a while about the longer history of debates over scriptural interpretation. These debates are what we might call the deep background to what's happened in the Catholic Church uh, in recent years. And this is deep background going back all the way at least to the 15th, 16th centuries and perhaps before. So what is this deep background? Okay, the deep background concerns the emergence of modern biblical scholarship and Catholic engagement with it. Now, a whole history of modern biblical scholarship is a, is a huge topic and not one I propose to get into tonight. What I want to do is to give you a sort of very brief summary of some key moments and some of the assumptions that came with it. We perhaps need only to note that a number of figures, especially beginning in the 18th century in the 1700s, began to articulate new accounts of the Bible, making, new tool, making use of new tools of historical criticism, 
And they did so with assumptions that these new tools would un uncover the reality of biblical religion behind the church's traditional presentation and faith. This is a movement that occurred uh, initially within a Protestant context, but eventually had consequences for the Catholic world as well. So we find in the 17th century, the emergence of new debates about the character of Jesus's preaching, once it's understood against the thought of his time. And we find a new emphasis on interpreting as far as we can texts in the light of knowledge of ancient cultures, language, and sometimes myths. Now, as I hinted when I used this phrase, behind the church's faith, many of these early figures in the rise of modern biblical criticism assumed a distinction between later formulations and interpretation and what scripture would have meant to its original writers or initial audience. Okay. Now, sometimes such assumptions are very helpful, but as a, as a global presumption, it's actually rather problematic, especially within a Catholic context, because it cuts against the idea that a text might contain depths of meaning that only emerge slowly over time, but are absolutely part of the meaning of the text. What else did the emergence of modern biblical criticism uh, leave behind? Well, one consequence of these styles of reading was that trying to interpret particular texts within a conception of the meaning of scripture as a whole became far more difficult. A central feature, which was this, of early Christian and medieval Christian reading came to fade into the background. It's an assumption in medieval and early Christian reading that any individual text needs to be interpreted on its own terms and in the context of the whole of scripture. But once one assumes that the key to understanding a text is simply trying to understand its author and its particular context, then thinking about that whole broader scope suddenly becomes very, very difficult. It fades into the background. It's seen as a style of interpretation that's almost ignoring history. So that's one thing that disappears. At the same time, very importantly, the idea that scriptural texts might have a spiritual sense of some kind, that they might mean one thing according to the letter, but they might also be read as a whole prophetically speaking about divine reality and action, that mode of spiritual reading suddenly becomes very difficult. But of course, within liturgical traditions, especially within the Catholic context, that's very, very difficult. Without such styles of reading, how do our liturgies, how could our liturgies link together the first Passover and the events of the crucifixion? which of course they do constantly, as does the New Testament. For the mostly Protestant scholars in the first generations of these new modes of biblical criticism, such styles of reading, these prophetic uh, spiritual styles of reading were seen as habits just to be rejected. 
But this style of reading, because of the separation it supposes between the historical meaning of the text and later reinterpretation, also makes a break between theology and the reading of scripture. Theology, which tells you what the church has come to teach, what the church has, how the church has come to interpret scriptural texts, is suddenly separated from the interpretation of those texts in their historical context. What a text meant to its readers in the first century is suddenly seen as very different from the way that the church hundreds of years later took those texts. So you have a separation between scriptural study on the one hand and theological work on the other. In the 19th century, this, this movement of modern biblical criticism continued. It became more and more specialized and certainly produced remarkable work. But it's also very clear that it worked according to a range of philosophical presuppositions, including, for example, making doubt a hermeneutical principle. When you read a text, you doubt that what it describes can have happened until you can prove otherwise, where especially uh, miracles or divine intervention are described, you must doubt that that could be possible in order to see what the writer might be about. Those assumptions in some ways are helpful for reading texts, and yet they are at the same time assumptions which make difficult some very traditional Catholic ways of interpreting scripture as a witness to God's action in history. It's very easy, I think, listening to what I've just said in the past few minutes, to assume that I'm presenting all of these developments as necessarily bad. So it's important to realize that I also want to say there are important scholarly assumptions and accomplishments here, as well as deep problems. So some of the real accomplishments of modern biblical scholarship over the past 300 years involve the recognition that understanding ancient Judaism is simply invaluable if we want to understand the writers of the New Testament. Also, a recognition that Jesus's message focuses often around announcing the presence of the end times, or perhaps that those end times were soon to appear. This emphasis is a, a recovery of modern biblical scholarship of great importance. At the same time, this scholarship began to open to us a wide variety of questions about how we might imagine the editorial layers of the four gospels. There's now a huge amount of scholarship looking at the way in which the four gospels we have also seem to be products which have incorporated prior texts. So what we have is both a great deal of promise and scholarly excitement, really. But we also have styles of reading emerging in the modern world that cut against much that was previously thought to be simply essential. And much that's simply woven into our liturgies, into our spiritual habits, into Catholic theology. Well, one more thing. It's wrong to think of this movement as a, a monolithic Protestant movement, and it's wrong to think that Catholics weren't involved. Uh, many Catholic figures responded quite positively 
to aspects of the Enlightenment in the 17th century uh, and to modern biblical criticism. Not all of these figures did so very wisely, but quite a lot of Catholic figures at that time did their best to undertake uh, new biblical studies to learn from the movements that were happening all around them uh, at that time in Europe. And interestingly, some of the themes promoted by these figures at the time uh, later became key to Catholic practice after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, an easy example is the encouragement of biblical translations and widespread biblical reading by the laity. Uh, at the time, in the 18th century, those ideas were seen to be positively dangerous by some church authorities, and yet later, after some centuries, they've become, I think, uh, essential to the way in which Catholic life is now conceived, and we'll see that in a bit. So what we're dealing with is a very complex picture in which modern biblical criticism began to emerge in the 18th century. It carried with it assumptions that were really uh, quite bad for the maintaining of traditional Catholic patterns of reading and thinking, and yet also held out much promise. The response of the authorities in Rome to these developments, especially in the 19th century, was often quite hostile. Modern biblical criticism was seen as very dangerous, uh, even though uh, study of the biblical text in the sense of editing the biblical text, revising the Latin translation, had been underway for centuries. And within the Catholic fold, there were many who had embraced these movements uh, down the centuries, but you had a position of strong conflict. And yet towards the end of the 19th century, Catholics began to engage these new currents, but in quite specific ways. Um, and I can give you some examples. The Ecole Biblique, the biblical school in Jerusalem, was founded in 1890 uh, by the Dominicans and was hugely important in promoting the value of archaeology for biblical interpretation. That institution fell under suspicion and it was closed for a while, but it eventually continued. Uh, in 1909, the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome was founded as a, uh, actually founded as a competitor um, and that competition continued for a long time. But what you did see was the development again of archeological and historical studies and Catholic work on textual scholarship and emphasis on the importance of learning ancient languages to understand the text and its context. And you can see that encouraged in the 1890s by Pope Leo XIII, uh, I think for my money, the most interesting Pope in the past 200 years. Um, I say that merely to provoke. Um, Leo the 13th, 1893 encyclical, Providentissimus Deus, um, which you can easily find on the Vatican website, is a fascinating text in which Leo shows the importance of learning ancient languages and archaeological work, uh, and yet at the same time is rather concerned about other trends in biblical learning. Fifty years later, in the middle of the Second World War, uh, Pius XII produced an encyclical, Divino Aflante Spiritu, um, which offers further very cautious encouragement of modern biblical scholarship. But this text is worth a moment of 
comment as it lays down a few principles that we'll see in later writing once we get to Benedict and Francis. It shouldn't just be read as an overly cautious or fearful text. It's actually rather smart. It emphasizes that there have been lots of changes since the 1890s. It's specifically writing 50 years after Leo XIII's encyclical. And Pius points out there have been many changes. Um, Archaeology and textual work are noted. There's a great emphasis on the importance of trying to read the literal sense of scripture in the light of a knowledge of the ancient world. But this is balanced, on the other hand, by emphasis on reading the theological sense of the text, reading along with the fathers of the church and their interpretation, and reading along in the context of church teaching to understand the full meaning of texts. So Pius XII in 1943 is trying to set up a balance. Perhaps he doesn't give us much indication as to how that balance might be maintained. That's a, a fair criticism. But as we'll see, this is a struggle which continues right up until the present day. But Pius, I think, recognizes the tightrope on which any modern Catholic surely has to balance. On the one hand, being open to the best of modern biblical criticism. On the other hand, uh, never giving up on the importance of reading the text in the light of church teaching. So these complex debates and shifts over hundreds of years are the background against which we see discussions of scripture occurring at the Second Vatican Council. And that's what I want to turn to next. It's worth thinking just how important modern biblical scholarship was to many of the most significant figures um, at the Second Vatican Council. Some of the important French and German theologians who acted as advisors to some of the most important bishops and had huge influence through various committees on the drafting of text, saw uh, modern biblical scholarship as an essential way in which uh, it was possible, it would be possible for the church to address modernity and speak to modern people. They saw it very important somehow to get back to forms of biblical expression and also early Christian expression. So discussion of scripture was seen to be one of the most important topics before the council and trying in some way to give teaching that would speak in scriptural terms was seen to be very, very important. Almost everything that the council has to say about scripture Scripture is summed up in the great document Dei Verbum, the Word of God, one of the four most important documents, constitutions they're called, produced by the Second Vatican Council. It's also one of the most controversial of texts. It was originally presented very near the beginning of the council. Uh, eventually, the draft that had been produced before this council met was uh, thrown out. And a whole new draft was uh, slowly written and argued over, and it was not promulgated until the very end of the council some years later. It constitutes what we might call a charter for Catholic reading of the scriptures in the 20th century. It is the product of a committee and years of argument. And 
of necessity. Because of that, it shows signs of conflicting positions. And there are things it avoids discussing and things that it does not discuss in particular depth or with particular clarity. But in general terms, its key points are very clear. And I think we can take its ambiguities as a providential opportunity for further thought. Now, I want to highlight two key themes that we find in this text, two themes that I think are hugely important for understanding how Catholics should read their Bibles and what scripture means for Catholics. These two themes will help us then to understand what Benedict and Francis share. The first theme, the essential theme, is the view of revelation offered in this document. The original document proposed to the council had focused discussion around scripture and tradition as two different sources of knowledge. It was very concerned with a, a discussion going back many hundreds of years um, about the way in which Catholics, unlike Protestants who claimed that scripture was sufficient, relied not only on scripture, but also on tradition, almost as an independent source of knowledge. This idea that there were two entirely separate sources came under a huge amount of critique uh, during the council for good reason. It was taken, it was presented as uh, an essentially uh, modern way of describing the problem, not one that really grasped the reality of that which uh, the fathers of the early church and the great medieval theologians had been discussing. What happens instead is that after years of argument, Dei Verbum, uh, this document on divine revelation um, begins a discussion of revelation with the figure of Christ, not with a discussion of two sources for knowledge, but with the figure of Christ himself. It is Christ who is the culmination of God making himself known through history so that we may, may become sharers in the divine nature. It is Christ in all that he says and does, not just in what he says, it is Christ in all that he says and does, who is God's self-revelation in the world. Let me read you the key passage and then explain it a little. After speaking in many and varied ways through the prophets, now at last in these days, God has spoken to us in his son. Jesus perfected revelation by fulfilling it through his whole work of making himself present and manifesting himself through his words and deeds, his signs and wonders, but especially through his death and glorious resurrection from the dead and final sending of the spirit of truth. The emphasis here is that revelation is not simply something that is conveyed by Christ's teaching, God reveals himself through the patterns of Christ's life and action. If you want to know what love is, you don't just attend, for example, to what Jesus says about love. Rather, one has to attend to the way in which Christ shows love and the way in which the death and resurrection reveal God's love. So that Christ is a revealing of God, but not simply in what Christ says, but in what Christ does. The whole person of Christ is revelation. So how do we 
know about this revelation? Well, let me give you two more little bits of the text and a little more commentary. Quote, the commission of Christ was faithfully fulfilled by the apostles who by their oral preaching, by example, and by observances handed on what they had received from the lips of Christ, from living with him, and from what he did, or what they had learned through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The commission was fulfilled too by those apostles and apostolic people who under the inspiration of the same spirit committed the message of salvation to writing. This sacred tradition therefore, and sacred scripture of both the Old and New Testaments are like a mirror in which the pilgrim church on earth looks at God from whom she has received everything until she is brought finally to see him as he is. Just as revelation is presented as the person of Christ, not simply Christ's words, the, the apostles fill their commission to go out into the world by preaching, by their examples, by the way in which they live. And they've learned this by attending to Christ's speech and by his life. As part of that process of going out into the world, consequent upon their attention to Christ, some of the apostles also write. So the writing of scripture is enfolded within a much wider process of the church going out into the world through the spirit, having attended to the person of Christ. So revelation and the writing down of scripture are here understood as a broad movement. God reveals himself in the whole person of Christ, and then the church goes out into the world, and as part of that going out, scripture is written down. So scripture fits within the earliest community of the Christians and is not a separate part uh, of God's action in the world. So scripture is enfolded by the unified movement of those who receive Christ's commission and the inspiration of the spirit. Let's follow on for just a few more sentences. Just one more quotation. Quote, what was handed on by the apostles includes everything which contributes toward the holiness of life and increase in faith of the peoples of God. And so the church in her teaching, life and worship perpetuates and hands on to all generations, all that she herself is and all that she believes. This tradition, which comes from the apostles, develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. For there is a growth in understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. This happens through the contemplation and study made by believers who treasure these things in their hearts, through a penetrating understanding of the spiritual realities which they experience, and through the preaching of those who, who have received through Episcopal succession, the sure gift of truth. So uh, in this text, the emphasis is that what is handed on by the apostles is also a whole range of things which contribute towards the formation of holy lives and the increase in faith. The church hands on not a teaching simply, 
but a teaching and a form of life. She hands on all that she herself is. So going back, you have the person of Christ as revelation, speaking and teaching in words and life. You have the apostles commissioned by Christ, handing on both a life and teaching, some of them writing down. And then you have through the centuries, the church handing herself on. And as part of that process, the church's understanding of the text grows. There is a growth in the understanding of the realities and words which have been handed down. That understanding grows through a variety of different means, through contemplation and study, through an understanding of the spiritual realities and through the church's preaching as a multi-faceted process by which the understanding of this text grows in the life of the church. Okay. The point that's being made in all of these texts, we might put a little bit more clearly by thinking about a common polemical battle that Catholics and Protestants get into. It's a fun polemical battle, but it misses something. Um, often in, con in polemical context with Protestants, we get into disputes about which comes first, scripture or church. Protestant tradition tends to emphasize scripture as independent of the community of those who read it. Well, Catholics in a sort of common polemical move say, aha, but scripture arose within the church during the first and second centuries and was recognized by the church. So the church comes before scripture. Now, while that's a fun polemical battle, I've used it myself, I'm happy to confess, it doesn't really capture what the Second Vatican Council is doing. The Second Vatican Council is emphasizing the inseparability of the two because Christ comes first. Christ is revelation in his person and in his words. And as a consequence, what is handed on is both preaching, teaching, a form of life, and a process of slow recognition of the depths of that preaching and that form of life. So the real distinction here is not church comes before scripture or scripture comes before church, but a refusal of that simple opposition. Rather, scripture and church are inseparable because Christ is revelation as person, not simply as text. So that's the first of the two themes that I want to emphasize in uh, Dei Verbum in this uh, great constitution, the Second Vatican Council. The concept of revelation as Christ's person, and then the picture of scripture and interpretation, which flows from that. And that leads to a second question, a second big theme, which is, okay, all of that's great, but how do you read scripture? Getting down to the nitty gritty question of how do you read the text? Well, one of the things that Dei Verbum emphasizes very strongly is the centrality of reading scripture. So scripture and tradition in that quotation I gave you a little earlier uh, are like a mirror in which the pilgrim church on earth looks at God. 
But later on, it's only scripture which is described as the soul of theology. Theological thinking, thinking about God, is always something which involves an attention to the text of scripture. Scripture is its soul. Now, the place, if you want to follow up this talk and go and look at Dei Verbum, uh, which you can find uh, easily in many languages on the Vatican website, uh, the place where Dei Verbum discusses the character of interpretation particularly is in chapter 12. This chapter culminates with a parallel between the structure of scripture and Christ. Just as the word of God assumes the likeness of human beings, so God's words have taken on the likeness of human speech. This statement sums up the principle that God speaks through human beings according to human modes of speech. And hence, the interpreter of those words must consider what the biblical writers intended to mean, as it says. What God chooses to make manifest through the words is what the human writers intended to mean. And so consequently, we must struggle to understand what the human writers meant using all the tools that modern biblical criticism has given us. So in one sense, Dei Verbum is the culmination of a process by which Catholics attempted to take seriously and engage with modern biblical criticism. It tells us that understanding the meaning of the authors in their context is essential. And yet it's not a one-sided document. It's very much a balanced meal. There are vegetables as well as the meat. Um, because it goes on to assert that we have to read and interpret scripture, quote, in the light of the same spirit through whom it was written. This is a, a key statement, a phrase repeated throughout Catholic tradition that goes, away, goes back all the way to St. Jerome, uh, the great translator of the Bible from Greek into Latin in the fourth century. What this means is that scripture is understood as we are attentive to the work of the spirit making clear its meaning. The spirit has inspired scripture and the spirit makes clear the meaning of scripture. So it's only through attention to the presence of that spirit that we can understand the text that the spirit inspires. So this creates a circular movement in which attention to the spirit is essential. It also, and this is very clear in the text of Dei Verbum, links understanding scripture to understanding within the body that the spirit leads. Okay, just as we saw when we discussed Revelation a few seconds ago, the spirit leads this community to develop its understanding of forms of life and words over the centuries through the spirit's guidance. So. If you and I want to read the scripture in the spirit, this is not talking simply about you and I developing some sort of personal mystical experience of the spirit. It's about developing awareness of the way in which the spirit works within the body of Christ. So reading within the spirit is about learning to attend to the way that the church teaches, 
the way in which known and unknown holy men and women have been raised up as interpreters uh, of the Christian life within the church. Understanding all of these things becomes essential to reading the text, and we'll return to that. So what you have if you look at Dei Verbum is a charter for scriptural interpretation that emphasizes a theology of revelation and a mode of reading that brings together two things, reading, uh, uh, trying to read historically to understand the meaning of the text, and yet also reading in the light of the churches being led by scripture. But before I go directly on, as we're almost there, to talk about Benedictine Francis, it's worth asking, what were the consequences of this text of Dei Verbum after the council? What are the consequences of this text over the last 50 years or so? Well, to put the matter rather simply, and here if there are biblical scholars in the audience, they're going to become unhappy with me, but it's okay, I'm a grown up and can defend myself, uh, and I'm, you know, two or three hours drive away. Um, one of the consequences was that this text was often taken simply as a license for Catholic biblical scholars to look more and more like Protestant biblical scholars, simply to do historical criticism without much attention to the other half of the meal, as I described it a few seconds ago. So the consequence was often uh, that Catholic biblical scholars were able to breathe a sigh of relief and take their part, as it were, their places in an academic guild studying the text of scripture according to historical methods without really thinking very much about the other insistence of the document. And one of the ways in which you see this problem uh, is the rise of the Pontifical Biblical Commission. After the Second Vatican Council, Paul VI uh, thought that it was a good idea that there be an international theological commission that could really think about the implications of the council and its theology, an excellent idea. Pretty soon after that was formed, uh, he thought it would be a really good idea if there were a separate pontifical biblical commission as a sort of subdivision of this theological commission that would consist of biblical scholars to think about biblical matters. Now at one level, that seems like a good idea. The consequence, however, is that you have a commission of biblical scholars doing their own things, occasionally saying to each other, yes, theological things are important, aren't they? Yes, but on we go doing biblical things. So that you've had uh, the production of a number of documents over the years, which in some ways have great merit, but at the same time have really been rather problematic because they almost always, and a nice example is the document you can find produced a good few years ago. You can find it on the Vatican website called Reading Scripture in the Church, which says, yes, yes, reading scripture the way that early and medieval Christians did is important, but on it goes. It doesn't tell you how or what that would really involve or why. It likes to return to doing modern biblical criticism. So the problem has been, I think that Dei Verbum as a text sets out an ambitious and really fascinating theological program that runs from the very highly theoretical and theological down to quite practical insistence on how scripture should be read. But 
for Catholic biblical scholars after the council for a long time, it was simply taken as a charter to do only one half of what was suggested. And this finally brings us to Popes Benedict and Francis. Now, Pope Benedict is a particularly interesting example because of course he was there uh, as a very young uh, priest, uh, as an expert at the council, helping to draft documents and to push bishops one way or another. And he had a particularly important role in helping to shape some of the emphases that we see in Dei Verbum itself. And that yet uh, over the decades which followed, he gradually came to, came to recognize ways in which that document had not led to the sort of renewal and discussion that he hoped and offered a number of interesting pieces uh, of writing over the decades uh, on the problems with scriptural interpretation as it had developed since the council. Particularly important uh, is a lecture from 1989 called Biblical Interpretation in Conflict. Um, it's uh, a text in which uh, the then Cardinal Ratzinger um, points out that the problem with post-conciliar biblical interpretation is it doesn't question its own philosophical assumptions. It tends to read texts piecemeal, it's neglected the unity of the scripture, and it finds it almost impossible to talk uh, about, to talk meaningfully uh, about the action of God in the world. It becomes a historical discipline far too close to secular historical disciplines. At that time, the then Cardinal Ratzinger tries to offer some sorts of suggestions, but they're very inchoate suggestions as to how this might be solved. Rather, it's an attempt to uncover uh, a dangerous tendency, as he sees it, in Catholic biblical interpretation. Now, leaping forward many years, in 2008, when uh, Cardinal Ratzinger has become Pope Benedict XVI, in 2008, the Extraordinary Synod of Bishops, which meets every few years in Rome, met, and the subject was the Word of God. The bishops deliberated for a long time and produced a series of final statements. And then, as is always the case after these extraordinary synod, the Pope takes all those statements away and produces a document. In this case, we have a document that is sort of an exploration of the key themes that the bishops had come up with, but it's also, I think, fairly read as the culmination of 45 years of writing and reflecting on the place of scripture in the church. In some ways, it's a, a hymn to or a riff upon the key themes of Dei Verbum, emphasizing those that have not been heard as loudly as they should have been since the council. And it's a really important text. If you want to understand, I think, how scripture should be read by Catholics, both as a whole and individually, you can't do much worse than spend some time studying uh, this text called Verbum Domini, the word of the Lord. And again, you can find it for free in many languages on the Vatican website. Now, I want to emphasize just two themes in the text. It's quite a long text and it covers all sorts of things, both those that Benedict himself wanted to emphasize and things emphasized by the bishops. So I, I just focus on two. The first is to note 
the way in which Benedict returns to the importance of thinking about how scripture uh, relates to our understanding of the word made flesh. God, he says, speaks to us in Christ through the person and life and actions of Christ, not only through his words. The reality of the word through whom all is created and in whom all that is finds its source and life is, he tells us, abbreviated, shortened, squeezed into a human life. The term originally comes from the third century Alexandrian theologian origin. Uh, the word is abbreviated into a human life. And scripture witnesses to this person and life and action. And then through the sending of the spirit, the spirit who worked in Christ, we can encounter this life and this person through this text. Cardinal Newman emphasizes that scripture is two things, simple and deep. It's simple and condensed, hinting at realities through short, sometimes ambiguous expressions, sometimes through metaphors. It's deep in how much is hidden therein. And in some ways, what Benedict offers is a theological account of why. Just as the word of God who contains all things is abbreviated into a human life and scripture witnesses to this abbreviation in enigmatic terms, there must be constant depths to be found within the text. It's only through the work of the spirit among us over centuries that we see the full unity of the word and the full unity of salvation history, that we see the depths hidden in simple expressions. And we see this above all, says Pope Benedict, uh, in the liturgy, because this is where the unity of scripture is played out before us. We see scripture sewn together into the liturgy, and we see the mystery of Christ's descent and purpose made present for us. And this last point already takes us to the second theme here. Uh, what are our basic forms of attention to the text? I'll summarize this by thinking about how the text helps us to think about reading in the spirit, in that phrase which goes back to Jerome in the 300s. This is not, again, primarily about reading scripture in the context of a private experience or encounter with the spirit. It is for Benedict about hearing scripture in the church. It points to the importance of hearing in many different ways. We hear in the liturgy. We hear scripture sewn together, as I said. We hear the spirit's voice in church teaching. We also hear scripture's voice, the spirit's voice, by attending to those the church holds up before us, the saints known and unknown down the ages. We also hear, he emphasizes, through our own encounter with Christ, particularly in prayer. So we hear in a variety of ways, attending to the texture and complexity of the church, church's community. We also hear, he tells us, we hear the spirit when we learn to attend to the letter of the text, when we read it repeatedly and digest it. And we hear in what he describes as the movement from the letter towards the spirit. 
Now, I'll come back to these last two in a second. The others all emphasize uh, hearing the spirit and thus understanding scripture through a set of relationships with the church as a social, historical and theological reality. It's through this set of relationships with the church that we learn how to read in the spirit. The emphasis on grasping this move from the letter to the spirit is he tells us really a movement towards recognizing the unity of the text and that the unity of scripture is found in understanding the mystery of Christ as the one who is the unity of creation and redemption. Now, Benedict in this text offers a very powerful account of, the, of scripture's place in the church's life, and he identifies with a great deal of precision ways in which Dei Verbum should shape how and where we read. There are all sorts of questions about the academic study of scripture that are not faced here, that really need to be, but his concern is to speak directly to you and me, to the church at large, about how we must read. And so finally, we come to Pope Francis. Last September, September 2019, Francis issued a short text indicating the fourth Sunday of ordinary time as the Sunday of the word of God. And in many ways, this text, Francis's text, is simply a working out of the agenda set by the Synod in 2008. The theology of scripture set forth in very short compass in this text is anchored in the events on the road to Emmaus and the importance of Nehemiah reading the law publicly after the exile in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah reads and interprets the law to the people of Israel and the people of Israel listen as one and they find the meaning of their lives in listening to the text expounded. In the same way, Francis tells us, Christ opens the scriptures to the two disciples on the day of his resurrection, becomes the first Christian exegete, and in that opening of the scriptures, the two apostles to whom he preaches understand their lives. Francis also notes that Christ explains to the disciples how he, Christ, is present in the scriptures. He says, quote, the Bible as sacred scripture thus speaks of Christ and proclaims him as the one who had to endure suffering and enter into his glory. Not simply a part, but the whole of scripture speaks of Christ. So the continuity between, I think, Francis and Benedict is reasonably clear then. Francis also emphasizes once again the importance of reading in the spirit. Only once we recognize that by the working of the Holy Spirit are human words written about the word of God, can we move beyond an obsession with the letter and develop our appreciation for the spiritual meaning of the text, the unity of the text as a whole. Francis's picture is aimed very much toward the need for Christians to engage the text. It doesn't attempt to set out a full theology of the text in the way that Benedict did or Dei Verbum did. But behind Francis's text is Benedict and behind both is Dei Verbum. In their emphasis not on technical skill, 
but on reading in community and reading in the spirit, we see center stage something of a reaction against the biblical studies, which proceeds without appropriate attention to the church's traditional patterns of engagement. These writers, these two popes, force us to keep turning to that tradition and to that theology of scripture, even as we are still struggling with how to appreciate the legacy of modern biblical criticism. Now, at the end of this short talk, um, I want to try and draw some lessons from these two documents read against the deep background that I've offered. Lessons for us as Catholic readers of scripture and for the church as a whole. One thing that is essential at the beginning is that a Catholic account of how to read scripture depends on a Catholic theology of scripture. Vatican II represents a real recovery and motivates all that these two popes do. That theology of scripture is one that's Trinitarian. The work of the Son and the Spirit leading us to knowledge of the Father is at the core of this theology of scripture. And it's also a theology of divine revelation of the person of Christ, and it's a theology of the church. A theology of scripture is then inseparable from a theology of revelation and a theology of the church as the receiver of revelation. Now, within that broad theological framework, let me point to two sets of conclusions. Ignore this point, my handout. I think I can make it much more simple. The first, not surprisingly, is the centrality of our need to learn to read in the spirit by whom the texts were composed. I hope by now this ancient statement has become a little bit clearer. It's about learning to read in the context of the community and the tradition structured by providence to lead us from letter to spirit. It's about learning to read in the liturgy, in relationship with our tradition, in attention to church teaching, and always toward the unity of the text. It's multifaceted and complex because that's how Christ is encountered in the church. There's no simple recipe that can be given as a series of steps for good reading. It's about reading with our eyes open toward the church. It's no accident, I think, that the ancient practice of Lexio Divina, of slow contemplation of scripture, has been one of the ways in which a knowledge of scripture has been encouraged in the post-conciliar church, because this is a process of encountering the text as a witness to Christ and in the wider structure of the church community. This is only a part, however, Francis and Benedict think that all aspects of the use of scripture in the church need to recognize the importance of reading in the spirit by whom it was written. The second set of themes that I want to draw attention to is the importance of what I will call opening the space of Catholic biblical interpretation. As I've emphasized, one of the problems since Stay Verbum has been that Catholic biblical scholars have become uh, increasingly an academic guild, separate from theologians, more and more following modes of inquiry set originally within a Protestant context. That's begun to change, and it's not to say that Catholic biblical scholars have not produced some important and penetrating work. But it is true that few Catholic biblical scholars that I know can articulate with clarity the relationship between their work and that of the theologian. And very few are also schooled 
in reading the exegesis of early Christians or of medieval Christians. Although such writings are constantly presented as an essential resource for understanding the meaning of the text in official Catholic accounts throughout the last hundred years, partly as we've seen. So we need as a church, as theologians and as Catholics to find ways to open the history of interpretation and read it as a spirit guided unfolding of the meaning of the text over the centuries, full of missteps and oddities certainly, but also full of penetrating unfolding and witness down those centuries. This is going to involve us in rethinking the training of our clergy, the structure of theological programs offered within the church to lay people and our practice as readers. And this is no easy task. Specialization in knowledge has become more and more the mark of all academic participation. But the fact that this is a problem does not render it impossible. Over the past 20 years, things have begun to change within biblical studies as a whole. There's more and more diversity in methods, more history, more interest in the history of interpretation across a broad ecumenical framework. There are now tools that I can point you to, things like the ancient Christian commentary on scripture or the church's Bible series, which, which attempt to find ways to provide openings towards that broader tradition when you're reading the text of scripture and a great deal more such material is needed. Earlier, I mentioned very briefly an insight of St. John Henry Newman. And I'd like to, at the end of this talk, return to that observation. For Newman, as I said, scripture is marked by simplicity, almost terseness of expression, and that depth, and yet depth. He summarizes point in these words, quote, when a writer is deep, his half sentences, clauses, parentheses, nay, his words have a meaning in them independent of context and they admit of constant exposition. When a writer is deep or when he is simple, he does not set about exhausting his subject in his remarks. He says so much as is in point and no more. He does not go out of his way to complete a view or catch at collateral thoughts. He has something before him at which he aims, and while he cannot help including much which he does not aim at, he aims at one thing always and not another in his deepness and terseness. Because of this characteristic, we should expect scripture not to tell us all that could be said about the nature of God and the doctrines of the church. We should expect illusion and understatement. We should expect this to be a text that demands of us attention and a slow penetration of its depths. If it is of God, we should also expect God to have provided us with an institution that allows us to rest with this simplicity and depth, to accept it and savor it. I suggest that the theology of scripture that I've tried to draw out of Benedict and Francis may be understood as offering an account of revelation and of revelation's interpretation within which resting in attention to simplicity and depth is possible. 